Welcome to Sea Time, everybody, the off-road show that brings you all the results, news, and online shenanigans that make being online a good time. We'd like to say thank you to Fly Racing for their support of Sea Time. Please go check them out at flyracing.com. Welcome to Seat Time, everybody. So episode 111 here on this lovely Tuesday evening, uh, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time in, I guess, North Texas. We'll go with North Texas tonight. Obviously, we're in McKinney, but hey, we'll just call it like it is. It's North Texas. There's you go. Don't know. We had all kinds of ice the past couple weeks, and now it's a balmy 70 degrees in Texas. Um, so as we mentioned, this is definitely the bipolar state. It cannot figure out what the winter it wants to have. Um, I just wish that we'd get a little bit of rain and not ice so that way we could have another mud run because those are always fun, especially when your fingers are frozen and you're just beating yourself up. It kind of gets interesting. So episode 111, this will be our last show for the year of 2013. Now, luckily, we've only got two weeks to go and then we'll be right back, but uh, much needed breaks for everybody. Obviously, as well, holidays fall right the day after Tuesdays. We don't want to be up doing all this kinds of stuff, but we will be back for 2014. So... I guess I say great 2013, everybody. We're going to get together later tonight and do our little video. So definitely in the next couple days, be on the lookout. We do hope that we are going to do a much better job than KTM did of 12 Days of Christmas. We shall see. So, of course, uh, Seat Time brought to you by Fly Racing um, of, and uh, PowerSport Graphics and Stillwell Performance. All those guys are awesome supporters of the show. We thank them very much for their support. And, of course, we're going to talk a little bit about the services that they offer later in the show cleaning we have a sale going on right now so free shipping if you go to seattime.bigcartel.com everything right now is free shipping just go in there order some gifts i'm the one that ships it so of course i'm going to do my darndest to get it out to you guys before christmas uh so please get in there and check it out um yeah what else we got there steven what do you think any other fun stuff that sounds good all right cool so our guest for this evening is going to be jason wygant um, you can Google his name as many times as you want. You just have to remember to spell his last name correctly. Um, it is a little difficult. Luckily enough, Google is smarter than I am. It autocorrects, and bam, I catch it every time when I was trying to stalk him before the show. Um, this is going to be interesting, um, but before we totally get into it, Mr. Weege, how is your evening going, kind sir? Oh, it's going all right. As you can see, I could probably stand to decorate my office a little bit better. Uh, this is the first time I've really seen what it looks like behind me at my desk. Uh, and then I see what you have behind you. It's a lot more impressive. So kind of kind of depressed already. That's it. Well, I'm going to cheer you up a little. Um, and the fact that I just got in my FMF shirts, my Caselli shirts today. So supported the Caselli Foundation. So we get a little bit more uh, decorating as well. So I'm stoked on that. So maybe you could go to FMF and order your own, and then you could start hanging those on the wall or wear them. Yeah, I did get a handful of the uh, a couple different kinds of uh, uh, Caselli '66 stickers they were handing out at the last Enduro Cross there. But uh, yeah, I got to get in on the T-shirt thing for so, sure. Yeah, okay, that might be my first move if I if I now know I need to decorate these walls. That might be the first first thing to do it with. <laughs> yeah, it it does look a little bland. I thought you had a little bit more energy in your life, but apparently when you're working, you're just all focus. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, anything outside about six inches around my laptop, uh, there's no real point in any of that. It all happens right in this box right here, and anything beyond that, I don't really need to worry about. I hear you. That's not getting work done. Six inches is all I'm working with, too. Hey, sometimes it's just how you use it. <laughs> I hear that. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know you know Jared Bolton correctly, or at least know of him for the GNC. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, in person and and. 
Yeah, I have met him in person. We do know each other. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. He is in the chat room, and he has planned to make sure that we're littered with fun news and events. So we may not be, we may not bring up all of those, but at least the chat room will have tons of information on you as the night goes I, I on. I say bring as much as you can out here in the open. Bring it out of the. <laughs> The depths of the chat room and bring it onto the show. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> I like it, um, which is which is fun because when I was listening to now, let me I guess kind of explain why I wanted to talk to uh, Mr. Weege to Jason and have him on the show tonight. Um, I listened to the Steve Mathis show um, from November twenty sixth was the the that podcast specifically, and you guys said uh, it was interesting because it was two hours long. You guys, you could tell that you guys just were just going at it and just talking about anything and everything. And that was oh, we where, were going at it. That's the one where we find out, you know, how you your love for four wheelers and how your dad wouldn't let you have a dirt bike. You were that's a, right. You were a flagger. You know, you worked at Disney, and then how you slowly walked worked your way into the industry. So if anybody wants to go listen to it, it's actually a really interesting story um, and a lot of fun. One of the things that you guys did mention on that podcast was what kind of drew my attention to being like, you know what? I think he has more to say on this subject, so I want to get him on to be able to talk to him about that. So this podcast was done right after the Vegas Endurocross. So I think Endurocross was on the mind. It was one of the things that we were that you guys were discussing. Um, and you kind of mentioned it. Let me see if I got it in my notes exactly how you said it. It was kind of funny. But it had to do with the fact that Endurocross has to be careful because they could get so big and the riders could get so specialized that yeah. people, the fans might have trouble, um, I guess, kind of catching a hero or finding – you know, understanding who these top people are that are winning, um, and if people are able to just come off the street and maybe get a chance at winning, that it's not good for the sport. And now, I kind of listened to that 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 segment a lot, but I wanted you to kind of give your more in depth, you know, thoughts on on that kind of discussion here, and then that way we can kind of banter and go back and forth about it. Yeah, to give you an idea of what we were talking about, it's something that's affected uh, a lot of these different uh, dirt bike sports. It's, I think, what actually led to the death of, of Supermoto. Um, when Supermoto, do you remember that thing taking off like a rocket? Yes. And then disappearing? It was in, in X about Games and all that stuff. Yeah, it was huge. And uh, what happened, I think, with Supermoto, one of the big draws right off the bat was not only was kind of a new form of racing that people hadn't seen much. I know that they had it in the early 80s and ABC and they were doing it in Europe. But for the most part, it was fairly new. So there was a just an, a curiosity factor. But also, man, when those first supermoto races started, the guys you had racing them were Jeremy McGrath, Kerry Hart, uh, Mike Metzger, Jeff Ward, uh, the Bostrom brothers. Uh, I, I think Nicky Hayden did it. It was like the who's who the greatest legends of road racing and supercross and off-road were all racing together. These were huge names that everyone knew. Uh, and those are the guys who were winning at first. But then other riders who aren't, weren't as well-known, maybe they hadn't won pro motocross titles or, or hadn't won any road race titles, um, they started seeing that as, wait a minute, this could be the thing. I was never quite good enough on the dirt bike. I was never quite good enough on the road race bike to win at the highest level. They were certainly good riders. They saw that as their chance to make it, and those riders started to win. And then once you had a series that were was now being won by relative unknowns or ringers from Europe and things like that, uh, I think that a lot of the curiosity was gone. Now, partially, also, the newness had worn off, and maybe people just didn't like the concept so much. But I think it really hurt, and there's it happens to a lot of sports. Um, arena cross, I think, is like that. You know, Everybody always talks about the heyday of arena cross, 
And what they always talk about is when riders they knew from Supercross came to race arena cross in their later years. Nowadays, most of the guys who are good at arena cross, that's all I've ever done. People do not know them from Supercross first. So with Enduro Cross, that started the same way Supermoto did. Ryan Hughes won the first one. <laughs> yeah. And then it was Ryan Hughes and John Dowd. And then it was David Knight. Uh, you know, guys who had won a lot. Uh, nowadays, most of the guys racing it outside of, say, Mike Brown, the most success that they've had in their career is just in Enduro Cross. So it gets a little dangerous sometimes, I think, uh, to expect fans to pick up on, well, we don't even really know if these are these guys good. I don't know. I've never heard of them before. Right. Um, so say like in the Supermoto bit where it, does it not come down to maybe the promoters in those situations to kind of say, hey, you know, maybe people aren't realizing who this unknown guy that just came off the street and won a couple times. Is it is it on their shoulders to maybe kind of say, hey, we need to promote this guy a little bit more so that the fans start to know who he is so that then they start to root for him opposed to going, huh, who is that guy? I don't want to go watch a bunch of nobodies. And this is obviously speculation, so. It can help. Uh, you know, I started uh, in, in GNCC. 2000, 2001 was the first year I was working for that series. And the first couple of years I was there was ridiculous how many riders we had. I think like 2004 was like a real peak. Uh, the money was really good at that point. Guys were coming over from other series. Guys were coming out of retirement. Old guys were not retiring. There was enough money on the line to bring those guys in. I mean, you had Rodney Smith. Uh, who people knew as a motocross guy, and Fred Andrews, who they knew as a motocross guy. Uh, Scott Summers came out of retirement. Everybody knew who he was. Um, Mike Kudrowski was there. There were so many names. Um, and then in 2005, uh, Juha Salmanen came over from Europe, and he dominated like no one could dominate. No one had ever, I think actually nowadays it still affects the way GNCCs are, are, are run and GNCCs are won. He is the first guy that I had ever seen that could lead a three-hour race from beginning to end, not crash, not run into lap riders, not fall down, not make any mistakes the whole time. Back in the day, like 10 years ago in that series, even the guy who won had like nine awesome stories of like, I almost hit a deer, I got <laughs> taken out by three lappers, I got stuck in the mud, I looped out on this hill. Yuha would just cruise around in like third gear all day long, no problem. And then eventually we realized, well, that's all you're going to get. So we have to try to build this guy up, and you have to try to build it as you're seeing the greatest of all time, or you're seeing something that you'll never see before. you got to catch this while it's hot. Uh, so it is something that I even went through when I worked for a series that had that situation. Uh, but there's only so much you can do. Obviously, they've done a great job. I think everybody respects what Taddy Blazusiak has done. I don't think anyone believes he's a slouch. Right. Uh, i, I got to think that with you guys, you cover a lot of different off-road Certainly his name's got to rank right up there with anybody, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it, I think they did a great job. And then you look at a guy like Cody Webb, who, yep. and then like a Colton Haker. Those guys were trials guys. And as trials guys, barely anybody knew who they were outside of the trials industry. Um, you know, and even Colton Haker was not as well-known as uh, like a Cody Webb would be. And then a Jeff Aaron as well. Until they started to get into the Adero Cross, where I think it brought a lot of in the early days. It brought so many different forms of off-roaders together in the same building that never happened. You're like, oh, it, it we got to meet these people and see these names, and it kind of was like, oh, cool, this Jeff Aaron guy is awesome. And then you start looking yep. at his back and everything like that, or his past. Um, and same with Cody Webb and uh, Colton Haker. So it's really interesting how it, it has, you know, the dynamic has been grown and just so cool that those guys are now 
famous, but then Cody Webb still talks about going to college and all this kinds of stuff. Like it's, it is it is awesome for them that, it, and you know, you got to be like Colton Haker. I'm sure you've talked to him. He's a great personality. You know, uh, that guy is media ready. Like if the day ever came where he get the spotlight on him, he was going to embrace it. So it's awesome for a guy like that that he's gotten that opportunity. But I I announced the second Endure Cross they ever had, and at that point people didn't have practice tracks. Uh, there weren't. There wasn't any place to practice it. First year, I think most riders didn't know what to expect. A lot of the top off-road guys didn't show up. The second year, it seemed like everybody from every series was there, and none of them had ever ridden it before. And the way they did it back then, they didn't even have practice. The riders walked the track and did a hot lap for time qualifying, and then they raced. Yeah. That was it. So by the end of that night, I have never seen a, a group of riders more pumped up. They walked... Most of the riders went and did a track walk after the main event because they were just like Mike Lafferty. I remember, you know, at that point he was like six time enduro champ. And he's like, I've never jumped over tractor tires before. I want to look at that. I want to figure out how to do that. I want to build that. I want to try it. <laughs> so I think it took a few years for all those guys to go through. Some of them turned out to be really good at it. Some of them turned out to be not so good at it. Some trials riders, like you said, who maybe even weren't thinking about it at that point, eventually became the specialist. And it's awesome that the series is big enough to give those guys a place to race. But I'm sure if you go around the majority of uh, casual motorcycle fans and say Cody Webb has won three races, they'd be like, well, I've never heard of Cody Webb. But if you said Ryan Hughes did, they'd be like, oh, that series must be gnarly. I like Rhino. So every series has to fight this. GNCC is in the same exact spot. Caleb Russell and Charlie Mullins, their biggest accomplishments for the most part have been what they've done in GNCC. Uh, Charlie's got some Enduro titles, but for the most part, they're GNCC guys through and through. It's a big difference from uh, Shane Watts, who had won all over the world and then came over. Rodney Smith, who had won motocross races all over the world and then came over. So it's the series, the series is, 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 can do what they want to build these riders up, but it's always going to be a tougher sell. And that's, that gets dangerous sometimes. Yeah. Huh? Well, uh, that's kind of a good tie-in for the fact that I was wondering about with the off-road industry. People talk about money and, and the economy and all that kinds of junk. Thinking outside of the box, have you, you know, kind of come up with any, or do you have any ideas on how the off-road community could kind of, kind of start to try to revive itself? I think it's there. Um, I, I think it is doing that for sure. But I guess it's always good to like talk to people in the industry um, and kind of see what maybe what people are thinking behind the scenes and what our ideas are out there. You know, kind of in roundtable discussion. Uh, one of the things that I found really appealing uh, about GNCC when I was first involved was uh, there was still a little bit more flexibility that those riders had as opposed to the, the guys who were motocross and supercross guys. Uh, there's always a story that, like, Ricky Carmichael would never get on a bike if there wasn't a stopwatch around. There was no trail riding for fun. There was no showing up at a local track just to see what's up. It was straight business all the time. And at the level those guys are, uh, that's all you can do. You, you you cannot take a single day to have fun on the motorcycle. It's either part of the training program or you got to be on the couch reco- uh, recovering. I thought it was awesome. Again, I'll go with a guy like Lafferty. Lafferty had this huge box van and then eventually had this huge bus, basically, that he had turned into. It was like a, it was like a tour bus that had a, a, a garage in the back, basically. And I thought to myself, man, if there was a life I'd like to live, I think I would take what Lafferty has going on over any of the motocross guys. Now, he's not going to make as much money as them, but I'm sure he's making decent money then. He's a pro, so he was 
living large enough. And it was like, yeah, this weekend I'm going to drive down to this guy's house or we're going to go ride some trails here. Then I'm going to go hit this race. I'm not part of the race in that series, but it'll be fun. I'll get to ride with some of my buddies. And maybe I'll try a little of this and maybe I'll try a little of that. And I think they all helped each other by dabbling in different series at different times. But unfortunately, nowadays I think that there's just enough uh, success that you can have if you really focus on one thing where they've all kind of separated themselves. Uh, you do not see, I think, the same amount of crossing over from one type of riding or one type of series to another as you did back then. So A, it's really hard to gauge how good are these guys because they never race against each other. And B, I think as a fan, the lifestyle just doesn't seem as cool as it does when it was like, man, all they do is load up a dirt bike and just go riding wherever they want every weekend. It right. doesn't get any better than that. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, they talk about like the specializing and kind of and how people are starting to focus in on you know one sport or maybe one type of racing. And I think of Taylor Roberts, you know, because he was doing yeah. all the works and durocross in, in as much desert as he could find at the time uh, before Baja, before he had gotten involved with the Baja stuff. But uh, he, you know, has last year Monster Energy signed him to uh, an enduro cross only, um, you know, deal. And now with KTM, that's what it sounds like. I'm wondering if he's going to wind up doing more because um, obviously with you know the passing away of Kirk Caselli, and I don't know if with Ivan Maria, Ramirez is going to kind of kind of be taking his spot. He's kind of like you know working towards that, I think. But I yeah. wonder if Taylor Roberts going to be doing more of that. But it seems like his deal is just specifically to enduro cross. And Mike Brown's the same way. It sounds like since he's going to be on Husky, that he's going to have an Endurocross maybe only thing. But I didn't know if he was going to, since he lives on the East Coast, if he's going to do some GNCC racing since he's never really done that before. Yeah, and I know, I think if Brown had his druthers, I think that's what he always wanted to do. I mean, it's kind of weird when he went to off-road, he's an East Coast guy, but pretty much all of his racing has been either Works or Endurocross, which are, and now Baja, which are primar primarily uh, West Coast series. But I think this is all a byproduct of uh, the off-road teams became much more professional uh, than they were earlier. I, I think even a decade ago, they would basically just, each brand had two or three guys that were their off-road riders, and they gave them bikes, parts, a box fan, and a budget, and just said, do whatever you need to do. Hopefully you win us a title. Pick a series. Pick two series. See you around, buddy. Like, they didn't even really have team managers. They didn't have PR people. There was nothing. It was just a dude on the road. Maybe he had a mechanic. Um, and... Again, to any of us, I think it's actually a pretty cool way to go. You know, you're just living on the road with your buddies, and there was just enough money for those guys to make that happen. Uh, but eventually, if you really want to win, and the manufacturers want to make uh, get the best return on their investment, they're gonna make it more professional. And they're gonna say, "Listen, no, we're gonna have eight riders. Two are gonna race this series, and we're not gonna risk them doing something else. And these two guys are gonna do this series, and we're not gonna risk them uh, doing anything else." I would imagine that KTM isn't gonna give. Uh, Caleb Russell a blank credit card and say go race wherever the heck you want and we'll take our chances that that's not going to mess you up for the one series that we're paying you to win right. so I don't know how you go back it's an awesome thing that there's more money and more professionalism but at the same time it has a, a little bit of a drawback too yeah huh um I was thinking about because we were talking about KTM. It made me think of a comment that David Knight said recently. Like one of the reasons why he went to Sherco is he says like a people like a team like KTM is so big now that they can't think small like a family. And he mm. wants, like, he, and one of the big things he liked about Sherco was that he was able to talk to everybody involved, like, that's involved in all the processes. Now, does anything like that 
kind of make sense to you or is he, do you think he's totally like it doesn't make sense or do you think that KTM is at some point might going to be they might be too big for themselves and it's so funny actually to hear that because uh it's all relative um on the motocross side the strength of KTM is supposedly that they are smaller and they're more nimble than the larger Japanese brands they're able to uh call Austria and get stuff made at the headquarters in Austria um, for the Japanese brands to do that and do that quickly, it's like they might call Japan to change something in January, and they're like, okay, when you get next year's works parts in October, we'll work on that. And then if they get the works part in October and it isn't what they want, oh, well, maybe we'll get something in two months or maybe we'll get something next year. Whereas KTM seems that they can make stuff happen weekly or monthly. So it's all relative. I'm sure on the off-road size, side, uh, KTM has a lot uh, more red tape involved, a lot more levels than Sherco, uh, but I don't, I wouldn't imagine they're they're that huge. But yeah, no doubt, Sherco probably has less people, uh, or fewer people in between. As it's positives and negatives, though, you got to figure sometimes uh, more people and and more resources can bring more stuff your way too, right? So I think in that case, you just got to look at it uh, both sides. I I, I got to imagine, look at the success of KTM's program. <laughs> They're doing something right. Yeah, it looks pretty awesome. The The resume that they have from 2013 alone is, I mean, I, I can't say for sure that they won like every off-road title, but I mean, when they pretty much swoop, you know, sweep the GNCC series, uh, it's, that's, that's damn impressive. Well, I want to throw this one at you. I know you're the host, but uh, I'm hey. too used to asking questions, so I got to do it. Uh, KTM, yeah, they absolutely dominate uh, off-road here. Uh, on the motocross side, they absolutely dominate uh, the Grand Prix series in Europe. And I've heard from both the, the Euro GP side and the off-road side here that it eventually becomes a problem if they are winning so much and the other manufacturers, meanwhile, are pulling back. Like Suzuki hasn't, doesn't have an effort at all, and I believe now it looks like Kawasaki might not either uh, now that Taylor Robert is, is gone and you haven't heard a replacement announced there. Is it actually good for KTM to eventually be dominating to this degree? I think there are people at KTM that are actually worried about that. Like, all we're doing is beating ourselves, and what does that prove? Do you think it's a problem? Um, who is it the real problem for, I think, is because in the off-road world, I totally was a Yamaha guy to the 2008, okay. uh, 2009, when I bought my, uh, I bought my 2009 uh, 250XC, my first KTM. And now, I think KTM does such a great job of making you feel a part of the family. Like yep. there's the bleed orange. Like they they oh, yeah. make you feel that. Like you you become part of that. And their marketing does that. You know all the way that they handle themselves, the way that they run their business, the way that they sell their bikes. Um, yep. And I don't think any other manufacturer does that. It, you might get that at a shop, like at a Yamaha shop, where this one yeah. guy gets it and he yep. you know really understands and brings you into that family. So is it going to be bad for KTM? Not in the sense that people aren't aren't going to be reliable to them. I think as long as they keep that up, they're still going to find it. Now, when people are out there and all they're seeing is a guy on a KTM beating a guy on a KTM, it, yeah, that's a tough one because it's kind of like, you know, well, I mean, you know, if we had a, a Yamaha out here, if we had a Kawasaki, but would it would it change any because of the fact that then they would be more motocross and KTM still is kind of the off-road race-ready bike. Um, I think KTM, like uh, like any manufacturer in that situation would, I, I think they would obviously much prefer to win the title and beat four other factory teams from four other brands right. than 
only beat themselves. Now, we we follow it closely enough to know there was a time when all those teams were there and they were doing really well anyway. And maybe they even discouraged those teams enough to discourage them from racing at all. We we know that they were able to do it legit. They're not just winning because those other teams left. Right. But people have short memories. You and I probably know that. But my, some people might be showing up at the races and wondering, well, of course they win. They look like they're the only ones that spend money. But right. <laughs> yeah. we, we know that even when everybody was trying uh, and was building even off-road bikes, KTM builds a good product and they have a good race team. So it is kind of unfortunate right now. I think they're almost so dominant that it's – somehow actually not making them look as good as they really are. If that makes any sense, I think that's actually what happens. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's something I honestly wouldn't have thought of. And so, I mean, that, I think it's definitely something to pay attention to. You, I, I think you're right as well that there's guys at KTM that are like, that's probably half their job is making sure that they are finding a way to not, you know, just beat themselves. Yeah, well, uh, I, I'm not a genius coming up with this. I mean, it's people from K10 that I've heard this from. You know, they want okay. other manufacturers to be out there. And um, the Husqvarna deal, I don't know necessarily how it's going to affect things in the United States in the short term, but they've actually gone out and said on the European side that uh, specifically the 250 class in, in the, the Grand Prix motocross, MX2 they call it, um, it is basically like you're either on a KTM or don't even bother showing up. The level of dominance they have in that class is ridiculous. Mm. And I think they've now said, okay, if no one else is going to challenge us, we will just put another brand out there ourselves. <laughs> if that at least makes it look like we're beating somebody. So I wonder, and once they get this Husqvarna thing rolling here, if, if that brand won't almost be used as KTM's rival brand. They will have to put their own rival team out there. I... I just, uh, there's, oh man, we could talk so much about the whole Husky thing. It's so cool that this is happening. I, I yeah. really thought, though, that we were going to, like, see a number five revealed on a white plate somewhere, like, on a bike. Like, I don't, I just figured, because, I mean, it would, it would be the Dungey bike. It would just be a Husky. Like, I don't know why, but apparently they're, they're not going to have a full moto team for 2014, right? No, just, no, they're just not the having, there were some team. rumors that they were going to do that, but they just basically said not ready, so right. not here in the U.S. They will have it in Europe, but not here. Okay, man, that's going to yeah. be so neat, and it, yeah, right now it's a rebranded um, Husaberg for sure. Um, maybe some minor touches here and there, but you yep. know, Husaberg for a while there were, were completely different bikes minus a frame and a swing arm, you know, while they were still within the 10 years that they were under the KTM banner. Now that yeah, remember the laid down cylinder bike? Yes. Remember that one? Yeah, and that it was, was awesome. That was supposed to be that you know to help with the uh, weight distribution, right? Kind of like the whole Yamaha turning the engine around. Wasn't that? Yeah, the... it was some sort of gyroscopic deal where the engine was higher, but somehow it felt lower when you rode it. Actually, most of the the people I know that rode it said it was awesome. Yeah, and they got they were actually kind of upset when they got rid of it and went to the more KTM. Yeah. You know, uh, was it the Unicam kind of setup that the that the KTM's have? Um, yep. So there was a slip-up. I think somebody accidentally posted a press release too early about the actual off-road Husky team that's going to come out. So we've got Russell Bobbitt, Andrew DeLong, Mike Brown, and Jacob Argebright. Um, yep. I think that's, that's a really strong team, and I'm I'm super stoked for Argebright. Uh, he has consistently been getting better, faster. He's been more results, more on the podium at the Heron Hounds. Um, so... I think with that full factory support, it's going to be neat to be able to see what he can do and where he could be Like once Ivan Ramirez is healthy and they're both out there battling at the Heron Hound. It's going to be pretty neat. What do you think about that pick for the Husky team? Yeah, he's definitely uh, definitely up and coming. And maybe 
maybe that's almost a strength of, of being able to do it this way because right now with the other manufacturers not really competing to take riders, um, KTM, they have the pick of the litter. Like, you know, let's say Mike Brown does want to race GMCC. Why would KTM hire him to do that? They have the guys that just finished first and second in the <laughs> right. series. Or if there's another guy that wants to ride Endurocross, KTM just finished first and second in that series. Um, on and on it goes. I know that Baja was like this dangling carrot for them uh, that they were trying to finally you know, beat Honda. That was like the final, the final thing left. And if you followed uh, the way they had taken over the other series, you'd have to think that if not for unfortunately what happened to Kurt, uh, maybe a couple years down the line, KTM was eventually going to dominate that too. So it's like if there's up-and-coming riders – how do you justify a spot for them when they already have two or three great riders dominating every uh, series they're in? So maybe this is the opportunity. If a, uh, Kawasaki or somebody like that isn't going to go after a guy like Jacob Argy Bright, maybe maybe Husky's going to be the only spot for him because KTM's already kind of full with with guys that have won already. Yeah, that's very true. I'm excited, I, and I think it's going to be neat too to watch as the Huskies develop into their own beast again. You know, they're and they're sure maybe they're always going to have a frame, or they're going to have the same suspension, or they're going to have the same swing arm, or whatever with the KTM's. Yeah. But they're going to allow to be able to do a lot of development, so it's going to be neat to see what the 2015s look like. But I think 2016 is probably going to be the year that we see the hot the hot business because. I mean, wouldn't you say it's probably that R&D and development before they get to production is about a year and a half to two years out? Yeah, that's what you hear. And I know KTM, um, again, in contrast, kind of what Niter was saying, but KTM is relatively quick uh, compared to other brands. I mean, the, the Ryan Dungey turnaround, getting a 450 out for him, that happened. <laughs> they, they seriously pushed that forward like 18 months or something crazy. The only thing that I wonder, I don't know how far along they are in this, I mean, this Husqvarna thing, which happened, I think, less than a year ago still. I think it was only... It was October is when it officially, I think, like, it was like September or October when it officially, like, blew up, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we're looking at just about a year. And that really surprised people. I know people that work for Husqvarna that literally had said about 60 days before that, you know, they had meetings, this is the three-year plan, this is the five-year plan. They had no clue uh, that a sale was coming. So... The point is, it's not like this was behind the scenes. They've been working on this for two or three years with a design of, we're going to do this once we get these bikes. I think they're really starting from a dead stop. And the only other thing you could think, well, maybe they had plans for what they were going to do at Husaberg. But that was kind of dead in the water. Like you said, they had turned into basically KTMs with, I think they had the plastic subframe was the only difference. Yeah. Um, so whatever ideas they would be cooking up to make the bikes different, uh, I think they're probably just getting started with it. So you're right. I'd say it's a, a while down the road. It kind of sucks, though, because I think people are going to judge that. Like, even when next year's bikes comes out and they're similar, they're going to say, oh, yeah, see, they're not any different. But two years is not really enough to yeah. uh, determine that, I think. I know. I'm, I am I bought 2013 300XC in, like, June of 2012. So I'm waiting until the 2015s come out to buy it. But as of right now, as long as I can sell enough sperm... And at least kill one of my children so I don't have to support them anymore. I'll probably buy like a 2015 Husky 350. I think I'm just going to bite the bullet and go back four stroke. Even though I don't want to work on them, but I will. Just because I want to ride something different. And it's just that Husky. God damn, they made that thing look good. Like, good. It does look good. Yeah, the, the color combo and everything. It's old school, but it still looks good. I find it curious, though, that you're going to raise money by, ironically, both killing a child and donating sperm. Well, the good so thing like is... Somehow- 
The good Both. thing is, is that I can I can have fun and I can donate sperm, which is yeah. cool. And somebody else can have a kid. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, they could put up with my child. And then I yeah, I get to I get to right. maybe maybe I'll just sell my kid, opposed to because who wants to kill somebody, right? I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. But if I sell point. my child, then it's the same thing like giving sperm, except I don't get the enjoyment out of it. And then, yeah, you you could still do that for free. More important, it'd be like it'd be the difference between you're basically if you sell the kid, you're selling it assembled as yeah. opposed to I'm just giving you a bunch of parts. Yeah, and it's not like it's going to be brand new. It's not like it's an infant. I mean, it's still you know it's already probably going to be walking and breathing by that point. Well, walking. Yeah, I don't know about the breathing. Yeah, part. <laughs> well, breathing was the pre- not breathing was the previous plan. Yeah, that's true. We want him yeah. breathing. We want him breathing for sure. Uh, yeah, it's interesting um, that you were talking about some of the other manufacturers that are not present. Um, yep. In more of a factory sense, at say at the GNTC and some more East Coast type of off-road racing, and definitely like works and stuff like that. But who goes to works anyway? Um, so Obermeyer is gonna, which used to always kind of be Obermeyer Yamaha, is now an Obermeyer Suzuki because they've always sold Yamaha and Suzuki. So for 2014, yeah. their team is Obermeyer Suzuki. So they're going to be coming into the GNCC with Suzuki as a backing. Uh, Josh String is off. The Kawasaki, but he said he's been riding the 450, the YZF, with so he's going to have like an Ampro support deal, kind of for that. And I'm sure somebody's going to be riding Cowie. Somebody's got to be on something. But then uh, Thang, the Thang, Thad Duval is going to have factory backing from Honda. So, yeah, is there is that any of that look like a little bit more light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to maybe more people stepping and getting back in the ring, or is it? Maybe they're just testing the waters. The Honda thing is, uh, that's been quite perplexing. In the heyday, when everybody had a ton of money to spend and everybody was spending a ton of money, they were the only ones that were not. Um, I mentioned Scott Summers before. We all know what he did for Honda and the brand back in the 80s and early 90s, right? Um, he basically built himself a factory team and eventually convinced Honda to to make it a legit factory team, but at first he was doing it on his own. Like, he got his own box van, painted it to look like a Honda factory box van, and then eventually Honda's like, hey, this is awesome. We'll just give you some money to keep it going. Then, when it seemed obvious and everyone was doing it, Honda wanted, uh, and um, Summers wanted to come back, it took forever. It was like two years of convincing Honda to come back and back the same guy they already liked backing in the past. (laughs) Right. Really strange. Now... When no one is really investing in it, now they're coming back uh, with an effort like they've never really had before. They only really came back because of Summers before. Really, if it were not for Scott Summers doing it pretty much on his own, there would have never been a Honda East Coast off-road effort of any kind ever until now. So that one has really surprised me. I mean, I think it's awesome. Uh, Honda does sell you know legitimate off-road bikes. I think one of the things that holds the Japanese manufacturers back on the off-road side is, you know, when you buy a motocross bike, it says for closed course competition only, right? Yep. Um, so I think they're always a little bit scared of literally advertising a motocross bike being ridden in the woods or in the desert or, or what have you. Because uh, that is a closed course for the case of the race. But obviously what they're trying to appeal to is look at how good this bike is on trails. But technically their bike is not legal to ride on trails. Hmm. Uh and then the Japanese have all these internal standards, I think, um, if they're going to build a legit off-road bike that you can buy. Um, they had these crazy durability standards 
Like, I guess you could buy, what is it, a CRF450X? Is mm-hmm. that what it is? Yep. Right. Like, I guess the idea is you could buy that bike, not change the oil for three years, not clean the filter, and just go out there and lug it around, and it won't break. And that's like an internal standard. It has to be able to handle that. It's awesome for the regular guy. That makes it maybe one notch below a KTM uh, performance-wise because KTM doesn't have these ridiculous internal standards. They basically build a motocross bike, soften the suspension, and say, here, you got an off-road bike now. It's always been this weirdo dilemma uh, for the Japanese brands. So I think that holds them back as well. Remember Suzuki came out with that RMX 450? (laughs) Yes. There he is. Okay, sorry. Yeah. You uh, you stuttered on us. You were like... The Japanese did not like me saying this stuff. <laughs> Google just turns you off. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the RMX 450? Yes. Yeah, it was out for like a week. Mm-hmm. And then... <laughs> Gone. Yeah. Did you hear what happened with that? No, I never heard. No. Here's what happened. Apparently... Okay, so they do all this work. It's fuel injected. It's legal for the green sticker or whatever the heck in California. Like emissions and sound-wise, it's legal to ride on public land. And then somehow the government found out, oh, wait, no, it actually isn't legal. So Suzuki said, we must remove these bikes from the United States. They are never to be seen here again. We can't – we're not even going to sell them with a closed course sticker on it. We need to get them out of here. And supposedly they went to like Brazil and Canada, and it is like, you must never speak of this bike ever having existed. (laughs) Like it was that big of a deal. Like we had a bike that was green sticker legal – and then there was a green sticker problem. We have dishonored ourselves. Let's pretend this never happened. Wow. So I think you just add all these weirdo layers of, of what it means to ride off-road and what an off-road bike is supposed to be. And then you get the European brands that, dude, they do not care. They're just like, what do you want? Okay, we'll build that. Go ride it. Man. Yeah, and that's what I remember. So I was talking, I came off of my 2007 WR250F. Yamaha when I had bought my 2009 and I remember yep. that 2000 that so I, I when I owned that 2007 I was just kind of like coming up in the A class and starting to comp- and actually finish top 10 in some of the overall in some of the Enduros here in Texas but I can't believe the amount of shit that I had to go through to make that bike fast to make that bike yeah. be able to ride fast it was ridiculous I mean once we essentially turned it into a YZ it was yeah. awesome. Like the, the right. little the little differences of the WR over the YZ were great. So that's why when I was like, God, we've got to figure something out when it was time to get a new bike, I just went with KTM because I bought I ready to race. And I remember all yeah. the shit that I went through on that Yamaha. And I was like, I'm getting that. I'm getting the KTM. It says it's ready to race and we're going to find out. So, and it, dude, you just throw a leg over that damn thing and go. And that front brake, the first time you use it, coming off a of Yamaha, you fucking endo like a son of a bitch because I went over the handlebar so bad. It was awesome. And I still ride KTMs because they're bitching. Dude, I had a... Uh, I, I had... I, I can now actually use the term past tense. I had a 2003 WR250F and I only sold it about a month ago. So <laughs> it's like my first public feeling of past tense. So... Yeah, so I get it, and I'm thinking 250Fs were pretty new at this point. I don't even know if anyone else even had one at all, um, let alone Yamaha had two, technically. They had the off-road one and the YZ. So the everybody knows in the early days of four-strokes, the worst thing about them was they could not start. The starting was awful. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, 
dude, why doesn't anyone, I, I've come up with the ultimate solution. They make a YZ250F with electric start. It's just called the WR. I've got to figure it out. So I'll just get it and I'll just put a number plate in the front and I'll race motocross on it. And if I stall, I'll have like, yeah, dude, not even close, not even close. And then the worst part was, so eventually, I guess, as you experienced with your 07, enough people know, okay, you got to do like these nine things to yep. make it right, right? Yep. So we had a guy who comes to our shop, our office, and he works on a lot of our equipment. And I was like, hey, man, do you know the regular drill of pulling the gray wire and taking out the throttle stop and all this stuff? And he's like, yeah, I've done it a hundred times. I'm like, all right, all right, you just, instead of me searching forums for a week, you just do it and I'll pay you for it. He's like, yeah, no problem. Then he comes back to the office the next day and he's like, yeah, I got bad news for you. Your bike was stolen. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he pulled the wrong wire, but apparently no. <laughs> Yeah, I was hoping. I was. I mean, the bike running crappy would have been awesome. Um, so yeah, it gets stolen. He first says that it got stolen out of the back of his pickup truck while he was at his shop. But then when we had to actually file the police report, then he unfortunately had to tell the truth, which was it got stolen out of the back of his pickup truck when he was parked at the bar at about 11.45 p.m. So <laughs> goes to the bar with a brand new dirt bike just tie down into the back of his pickup truck at midnight. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, yeah, the chick's not going to... Believe it or not. Go on. That, no, I say go on. Like nine months later, I get a call from the police. They have found the bike. No shit. They found the bike. Dude, you know, riding it on the street. Because, you know, whatever it is, like if you're dumb enough to buy a stolen bike, I guess all other every, all other rational thoughts out the window. <laughs> so they ridden on the street. It had literally quad handlebars on it. Like the handlebars had, like there was this much space between the crossbar pad and the cross and the and the handlebar clamps. It was in horrible shape, but it fixed it up, got it back running again, and the thing was still running fine. Like a month ago when I sold it, it was still running good. That I guess those little internal standards we're talking about. The thing was literally ridden on the road for like nine months, and I'm sure they didn't change the oil or anything. Ten years later, still cranks up, still runs strong. Did the electric start still work? No. <clears throat> well, it was almost perfect. That's okay. Excellent question that you asked. Yeah, one time I raced it in a moto at High Point once. I go into the first turn, you know, like huge pileup, five bikes laying on top of each other, and when I get up, it had like ripped the wire out, and I'm like... The whole point of this bike is now over. <laughs> whole point of having this bike just been ruined in three seconds. Oh, dude, I love the magic button, man. When I when I when went to the, my dad had an 03 WR, I think, and that was kind of when I uh, was still on a little bit smaller bikes, and I was able to ride that around, and I was like, dude, they have magic buttons now on these things. I was yeah. like, why does every motorcycle not have this? And I like people are like, dude, because it adds a pound to the bike. I'm like, a pound to what? like wait i'm like why do you want to kick this thing for an i was like this is the shit so it's pretty yeah awesome. yeah i agree man it changes the way you ride especially in an off-road race like if you're just riding okay and you stall on a hill or whatever like okay it's gonna suck and you're gonna be breathing heavy by the time you're finally back out of there but whatever if it takes a little time but in a race like that could ruin i can i can tell you like i raced at gncc earlier this year and i got this like right here, I got this crazy blister and I couldn't figure out why. I'm like, I never get a blister anywhere near that when I'm just riding. And I realized I was so much more worried about stalling the bike because the bike I had didn't have electric start. Right. 
like my hand was on the clutch the whole time. I was, you know, basically riding the bike with nothing but the top of my hand the whole time instead of ever having it around the bar because I was so – I'm like, dude, if I stall this on a hill or something, that two minutes it's going to take me is going to ruin the race. Where if I had an electric start, I wouldn't even been thinking about that. Like it was in the back of my mind the whole time. Yeah. Now, I've easily uh, stalled my any of my bikes that I've had lately with electric start and been and not even, you know, just trials it, stand up really quick, get the balance and burp, push the button, sit back down yeah. and just go. Like, of course I'm a badass. Did you see what I just did? Sure. What up? Um, but it did suck. So I was uh, I was at an enduro and my, a good buddy of ours, Brian Story, been on the show a couple, bunch of times. He was, I saw him take his water bottle, like he was like, oh, I'm going to go ride to the, we were at the gas stop or whatever, and he took his water bottle and shoved it in behind his number plate. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I do this just so I can have a water bottle with me at the beginning of the next test. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool, you know, not have to do your camel back all the time, all that stuff. So I was like, I'm going to do that too. So I go, shove it in there. Nothing feels like it's snagged or anything stupid happens. Well, I get there, like once I get there and go and stuff, I try to start the bike and it doesn't do anything. And I've when I put the water bottle in there, I pulled the wire out of the damn plug. So I was wow. like, I was like, oh my God, I'm like the first KTM in history that like the electric starts broken. Well, maybe not the yeah. first, but still like, I was like, damn it. Same kind of thing. You're like, oh, I just lost all of its magic. Like the whole shit. point, the whole point of the bike. So, Gone. It's, yeah. so it was, it was something special and it made me realize that sometimes what some people do, they do way better than the way that I can do it. And I should not try to emulate everything that everybody does. Yeah, even stuffing water bottles into number plates, there's a skill there apparently. That's why I stopped going to uh to see hookers too. Apparently, you pick people up people are more shirts. skilled with that. Than yeah, I I suck at it. It's no good. Everybody's like, "So you have to pay me now?" I was like, "I thought you were paying me." And it's... I suck at spending money, so yeah, I'd probably be bad at it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I wanted to know. So Ryan Sipes, fantastic job at the ISDE this year on one of the club teams. Um, he has announced. Uh, earlier, I haven't seen too much going on with what's, what's been up, but um, I wanted to know if you've heard anything new developments with his like maybe privateer team that he's kind of going to be doing for GNCCs, if he's actually still going to be doing that. Uh, I think what I've heard is like what he was looking to have happened has happened. Like whatever he was looking to get, like I think it's going to happen. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. but I don't know what that was. Like I don't know what I don't know if he's like if someone will just give me bikes or someone will just give me 20 grand or someone will give me a rig i'm not exactly sure what he was looking for but i thought i'd heard that whatever he needed to get to say yes he got but i have no idea who that's with yeah uh, i could probably do a better job of uh tracking that down hey but man maybe you could too. maybe what, between the two of us we could probably get the answer probably like right now i know we could probably try to just skype him into this call if we knew that he would be online but you know hey wow. um Technology's nice unless you forget how to use it properly. <laughs> and then it just yeah, we have screwed. like seventeen things at our disposal to get this answer. But I know. Oh well, Stephen, here's my phone. Find his number. Seriously, there you go. All right, Stephen's gonna make All that right, happen. It's gonna happen live. Maybe I don't know. We'll see. He's probably gonna be like, uh, "Whose yeah. number is this? <laughs> what the deuce?" Um, so with that, the Suzuki coming into GNCC, I wanted to know if there's anything for you with 2014 where you're just kind of like, "Man, this part." That they've changed for GNCC is going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to the battle and the you know the the big class, like whatever it is, like the XE one class. Like, is there anything about 2014 GNCC that you're just absolutely stoked on? Last year was obviously so much of um, the Russell and Mullins show, or Muscle, 
as I accidentally called them and then pretended that I did it on purpose on one of the TV <laughs> shows. I screwed it up and then pretended that I used it on purpose to make a cool word. Uh, I think if you look at it, everybody else that could have challenged him ended up having some problems. Like, the beginning of the year, I, I was pumped to see Strang back in the series, and I think he thought that he was going to be able to put his own program together and be fairly competitive early. And then I think it was pretty obvious to him that, okay, this is going to be a lot harder to figure out all the things I need to figure out. Um, you know, he's kind of doing it on his own. He's not part of a team. Uh, it's the first year of reading to Kawasaki. I think he switched, like, suspension companies and stuff like that throughout the year. Just working on it, working on it, working on it. I think he'll be better this year. Even if he switches brands, I think he'll just understand the challenge and what he needs to do to make it right this time. Obviously, Wibbly was not really Wibbly all year long, except for the starts. But otherwise, <laughs> yeah. uh, he was kind of dealing with an injury all year. So guys like that should be a lot better. So that should make it interesting. Yeah. And um, this was 2013 was supposed to be Wibbly's last year in the States, wasn't it? I think uh, or is 2010, that just... 11, 12, and 13 okay. have all supposed to have been his last year. What's the deal with that? I didn't know if it was the same thing where it was mainly more people talking. Like, so Jason Thomas. A lot of people thought that Jason Thomas said, I can't get the salary I want to feel like I can be competitive in the XE1 class, so I'm not going to race anymore. Everybody mm-hmm. took that as he's going back to England. And so I had him on the show, and that was one of the things I asked him. I was like, well, everybody's saying all this. And he's like, guys, I'm married. My wife has a job here. I have, you know, I'm going to live, like, we're going to live here. Just because I'm not racing doesn't mean I'm not going to be in the States. So I wonder if maybe somebody's kind of always said like, you know, maybe Wibbly's ready to retire, but that doesn't mean he's actually ready to like move out of the country. I don't know, unless he's afraid well, of Obama. Wibbly's here. situation is the opposite though. I mean, his wife's from New Zealand. So I do think that whenever it's over, he would probably go back there. But he has said over and over, like I, it, it's been like three years in a row or four years in a <laughs> row with that. The rumor has been it's his last year. And I've straight up asked him and he's like, I've never said it. Like, I don't know what, maybe they just think I'm old or maybe they're tired of seeing me. But for some reason, every year that happens. And dude, this year was a bad year and he had an injury. If he was ever going to not come back, he would not be coming back for 2014 and he still is. So he mustn't really want to leave that badly. Yep. I agree. I think, uh, I'm excited because I think that a lot of people are going to step it up. Like we've seen, I think that there's going to be a lot of a lot of fire under a lot of people because Charlie Mullins and Caleb Russell were so dominant this year in the XE1 class, um, and we've got guys moving up from the XE2 class into the XE1 class like Andrew DeLong. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for that, dude. That could be really impressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, he's just like it, 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 when the first time I ever talked to him, we were talking about racing and things that were going on, and he mentioned his his what has kind of to me become the normal thing is the blood in the water. He's like, man, I smelled the blood in the water, and I was just like, ooh. I was like, that's the level this guy thinks on. It's very primal, yeah. like just. And so he's the guy that's gonna be like, you know what? I don't care that I tore my arm, half my bone sticking out. If I can feel like I can still be on the bike and twist the throttle, I'm gonna try to chase that guy down and get the win. So I'm super excited to see him. Um, out there, I wonder if Russell Bobbitt's going to be doing any GNCCs or like a like a Nick Farringer if they're going to be out there because you know they're in that same specialized spot we were talking about with the Enduros, the National Enduros. Um, but you know they they come up and do some OMAs uh, and things like yeah. Bobbitt's the 2013 OMA champion. But I wonder if they're going to kind of start to get uh, into the GNCCs a little bit. Those guys always go fast, especially early in the race because uh, you know the mastery of just reading arrows and reading trail. I mean, that they're not used to doing lap after lap after lap. Their thing is running a new, fresh trail for every inch of the whole day, right? Right. So when those guys come, they usually make some noise. So that makes it interesting. One other uh, uh, wild card I'll throw out there, 
I hope I hope he can get it back on track. But uh, Stu Baylor, if you remember him, yep, uh, you know, coming through the ranks, has all the tools, all the talent. KTM's got his back right now, but uh, that wrist injury has been really bad. I hope it works. Plus, he wants to you know do it on a two-stroke, which I think would be pretty awesome as well. And KTM, I'm sure, would be pumped on that to have a, a two-stroke guy out there yep. representing. So I hope he can figure out that wrist situation. It would be really be a shame to have someone that young, that talented, that fast, works that hard, and then just have an injury just prevent it from ever coming together. Um, he'd be much like DeLong, I think, you know, with the kind of uh, uh, fire he could bring into that class. It's just a matter of his wrist going to let him do it. Yeah. Uh, so from the chat room, Bolton has given us some information, and it does look like he says Bobbitt is in full capitals and quotes for GNCC. So he should probably be under the Husky banner. And then yeah. they were saying that Sipes is WMR with, you know, which is a KTM dealer. So then that would be, would assume that he will be on a KTM. Um, and that they were saying that they, somebody searched through his Twitter and, and saw a couple updates about WMR. And since they're a KTM dealer, I guess that's a good assumption. Yeah, right? and they've had efforts in a series before with, uh, I think they were the Rory Mead team for a yep. while, and, and yeah. maybe even Nate Canny, I think, was, uh, was was their deal for a little bit. So those guys know what they're doing. That could be a pretty good fit. The motocross thing, it's like 50-50, how well it works. I think Stipes is, is probably going to be all right with it. Um, what I noticed is, again, in the heyday, where it seemed like a place you could maybe get a couple more paychecks, and a lot of old motocross dudes were coming over and checking out. Guys are older than Sipes is now but uh dude i think most of these guys once they've lived motocross life they think they've had a hard they've never ridden a rutted ass <laughs> three-hour trail uh and you're getting paid a fraction of what you probably were getting when you were on an awesome freshly groomed supercross track for 18 minutes so it takes it takes a certain mindset now i think sipes probably has it but like, I've seen the gnarliest dudes. Like, Ryan Hughes raced a couple GNCCs, and then he's like, dude, I'm not coming back. This stuff's too hard. And I'm <laughs> I got like, actual blisters, guys. Actual blisters. Yeah. I'm like, too hard, but you're Ryan Hughes. He's like, I'm not getting paid enough to ride three hours of this crap. Wow. Yeah, and that's like the toughest dude ever. And I know Dowd tried a couple of them, and every time he showed up, it was muddy. And I'm like, yeah, but I thought you liked riding in the mud. And he's like, not for three hours when it's just one rut all day long. Screw yeah. that. 30 minutes plus so, two left, baby. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it'll hit you over the hit you over the head pretty hard, depending on who you are. Yes, I think it's going to be an awesome year. I'm really looking forward to it. I really enjoyed the webcast this year. It was gave uh, ability for a guy like myself, as uh, as we were talking about in Vegas. You know, it was me and maybe the, the 200 other people out there sitting on their couches watching it. But hey, yeah, you know, I, I really enjoyed it, and it sounds like they're going to keep it up. Unfortunately, they didn't hire me again to be the guy. But hey. You know, I'm just going to keep sucking at doing this, and we'll see what happens. Um, well, well, they haven't hired you yet. They haven't hired you yet. You never know, man. You never dot, know. Dot, dot, man. Yeah, I'm just, I'm not saying that based on any rumors I've heard, but I just know how that operation works. Uh, people always accuse us of, like, these crazy conspiracy theories, and I'm like, dude, we're just trying to get the next race going. We are working day to day, week to week. So, watch... Stuff changes all the time. You never know, man. You might get a phone call like uh, on a Saturday night at 9 p.m. Hey, how quickly can you be in wherever? Oh, I did get one of the. I got an email from John Ayers like that. I think it was like a Thursday night before a race. 
And he was like, okay, it actually happened. Yeah. Like that's what I'm saying. That actually happened. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I go. was just like, dude, I'd love to, but we've got a family thing. And it's like, so just, and I told him, I was like, just keep me in mind though. You know? So it's, it yeah. is, it's weird stuff like that. So we'll see what happens. I don't know. Um, so I did talk to like a Jason Hooper and a Jeremy Saylor. And then, um, as I said, as I mentioned, Jared Bolton, just to kind of get some more information about you. And it's funny because you talk about the WR250, which is other people mentioned that I should ask you about. Uh, of course, uh, we as well talked about, uh, uh, what was it, your first race. So I want to know about when your dad drove all the way from New Jersey to watch your first race. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. Um, no, it wasn't It wasn't my first race. It was the first one he was going to watch me. I, I raced a couple times uh, before he had seen, uh, before he had been there live. And then um, we, we had, I think this would have been 2003, our, our buddy Tim, who used to run the uh, scoring and results for uh, GNCC and Loretta's and all that stuff, uh, he had used his. Um, he was using us basically as guinea pigs for a scoring system. So he decided to have the Office Championship Series, where we each have to run. Uh, like we ran one local motocross, one GNCC, one this, one that. He even set up a hill climb in like the woods behind his house, and we ran like a five race series. Uh, so the final round was going to be uh, a motocross at High Point. So I told my dad, I'm like, I'm definitely racing this one. It's the last race of the year. It's in like October. Uh, come on out. And he's like, I think my dad was in shock that I was actually racing motocross. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so my dad drives out. It's like seven or eight hours to get there from Jersey. And uh, we load up in the morning. We drive out. I think he's even surprised that we have like a whole system down. Like, like I know how to start the bike. I know how to load the bike. I know how to take the bike <laughs> off of a ramp and put it on a stand and I know the people that sign up. Like I have all this, I have riding gear, and I know how to put it on and everything. Um, so we go out for practice. It's shocker. It's high point. It's super muddy. <laughs> I was feeling pretty cocky. Like I had done decent for me in the first couple of races. By the way, the office championship is against like four other people. So you're always going to be like fourth at least. Sweet. So we get to the straightaway at high point where they used to have a ton of jumps. Nowadays it's like just a big straightaway, Bradshaw Boulevard. So I was like, all right, I'm going to get to the top of this hill, and I'm just going to jump, see what happens. Well, I took the first lesson of jumping in a motocross track, right? You can't just jump randomly. You need to either jump the perfect distance. Going randomly too far or too too long is not going to work. Right. So I jump what I think is a tabletop. I can go any distance I want. In midair, I realize it's a double. <laughs> uh, I case it. Instantly, I just feel my ankles like explode on impact. And that jump section is right there next to the pits. So I just hang a right and go back to the pits, and I lean my bike up against the truck. I couldn't even sit on – I couldn't even put my feet in the ground. Like I leaned the bike against the truck, rolled over to lay in the bed of the truck, and then I just laid there because <laughs> I couldn't like move basically. <laughs> so my dad's probably just watching practice. Like when is he going to come around? Never saw me. When is he coming around? So I'm waiting for him to come back. He's waiting for me to complete my lap, which never happens. <laughs> uh, finally, like, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes later, he finally comes back. And he's like, where were you? And I'm like, yeah, I got to go to the hospital. So I had to like teach him how to load up the bike since I basically couldn't walk. So I had two broken ankles. <laughs> so I have to like explain to him how to like, no, nah, this is how you get a bike off the stand. This is how you push a bike up a ramp. You got to put a loading ramp here so you can walk up the back of the truck. Then he'd take me to the hospital had to get my double air casts. Um, yep. And remember, if you listen to the Steve Mathis uh, podcast, 
My parents aren't really pumped on the motocross thing due oh, to yeah. the risk of injury. Yep. Yeah, so I proved him wrong big time. <laughs> Suck it, Dad. Yeah, look, I could do three quarters of a lap before I broke both ankles. <laughs> Should have stayed on quads, kid. <laughs> Dude, I haven't really proven myself at all. I mean, the first time I was going to race, like the year before that, like I got a bike, I rode it for like three weeks, and I'm like, now it's time to go racing. And then I broke my navicular like instantly, like before I even, the week before I was going to race. So yeah, I haven't haven't proven anyone wrong in the danger part. You and your navicular, man. That's what Stu messed up, wasn't it? Yeah, that is what Baylor messed up. But I've heard when I broke mine, I heard heard all these horror stories. You know, mine's never healed. It's taken two years. It took a year. But they would always throw in the caveat of, well, of course I did cut the cast off and went back to hammering nails at my construction job. Mm-hmm. Or, of course I cut my cast off and went racing two weeks later. There's usually that little part they're leaving out when they talk about the risk not healing like Baylor Road all year two years ago with that wrist broken so yep. that's what you get yeah for sure yeah I, I had a my buddy of mine in a game uh, a very drunken game of uh, some kind of like horse or basketball or whatever buddy just happened to check him bam hit the ground put his arm down to catch himself and like broke his navicular and the doctor was like dude and, and he told him he was like don't fucking move this thing because he was in a cast up to here like for what? his navicular it was like up to here. And then, I don't know. But the doctor was like that set on like, don't move this thing. Like, cause he's like, this bone dies easily. Like, and so he yeah. was like, okay. Like, you know, so it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. A weird deal. It actually took me about three or four days to realize it was broken. Like I couldn't turn the keys. I couldn't turn the keys in the ignition. I couldn't turn the keys to open the door of my house, but pretty much everything else felt okay. So I'm like, clearly this isn't broken if it only hurts under these like 1% situations. Um, I think that's what misleads people. The bone is tiny. It doesn't hurt like unbelievably bad like in normal life. It's not like if you broke your arm in half, you would know your arm was broken. Right. right. So I think it tempts you into thinking, eh, I can get by. I can fudge it here and there. Do not. Do not. Do not. No. That's dumb. All right. Look, look, so- look at this. Full full everything no no problems whatsoever that's some that's some nice uh, range i've worked of this thing a lot <laughs> i bet you have i bet you have it works great Sell- uh, often with the computer in front of me too <laughs> selling semen is is a is a is a profession you have to practice at that's right that's how you buy new bikes <laughs> i'm good at it what can i say every two years buddy every two years so before uh we kind of close up here just because you know we like to keep the show around an hour long just but you know because we have to pee and then other people don't like to listen after that so hey but i wanted to know your opinions on kind of like what it seems to be a very large plethora of injury uh, injured supercross riders um going into you know getting ready to start this season um you know with bogle Millsaps, canard musquin uh savachi and baggett um you know and that's just a a, a fair number i would imagine there's probably more it's just not as well known um is there anything different is the sport just gnarly as it always has been or you know what do you what are your thoughts yeah today i think we set a record if you go to the racetrack site right now the breaking news has three straight injury uh updates i don't think we've ever had a three-peat three in a row three things in one day uh, riders being injured, the Moose Scan, Baggett, and uh, then another guy, Casey Henson, who's right. a privateer, uh, brace, basically broke his face. Oh. So, yeah, you know, everybody comes up with theories. Um, if you just go to the comments section underneath each of those, for example, uh, the four strokes are devil machines. Um, <laughs> they shouldn't have supercross. They should only do motocross. Um, I mean, my whole life that I followed it, most of the time, 
the championship at the end of the year just came down to who got injured and who didn't. So it's definitely not anything new. Uh, so for the most part, I always prescribe to, dude, this is the way it always is. Like, what are you kidding me? Like any local race in 1982, people were walking around with casts on and they're walking around with casts on now. That was the theory. That I always, uh, just go back and look on YouTube. You can look at videos, right? They are going way faster. In, in everything, and this isn't a motocross thing. If you guys go to theracertv.com and watch that final GNCC where Caleb Russell's trying to make up time and catch Mullins and, and try to win the title, I mean, dude, it's just way faster than anyone else has ever ridden. And that's not, people might say that's sacrilege. How can you say he's better than this guy or that guy? Well, bikes get better every year. Riders get better every year. Everything steps up every year in every sport. That's just natural evolution, right? I mean, I'm sure the bike that Caleb Russell's riding is way better than what they were riding 20 years ago. So, of course, he's going faster. Now, that's awesome in every sport that things are getting faster and better, except here, they probably are literally going, what, an extra 10 miles an hour faster? It's going to have a, a bigger impact. Yeah. It's, it's this weird thing where in almost everything on earth, like, hey, computers get better all the time, and that's why you get to do your show. Uh, it is awesome. It's a pint full of awesome, right, that you're able to do this. You know it. Yes. But unfortunately, on the motorcycle side, it means you're going 10 miles an hour faster with everything you're doing. That cannot be good for the safety safety record. There it is. Yeah, uh, Jeremy Saylor in the chat room says, we obviously need speed limits. Yeah, there you go. I don't. <laughs> you know what? There's And everyone's going to have a theory of how to fix that. Speed limit, sure, throw that in there. It's no less ridiculous than some of the other ideas we've heard. I mean, a lot of people are going to say, you know, you need to make the displacement smaller or go back to two strokes or whatever. Dude, in all other motorsports, they've tried everything. MotoGP has had 800s, 1000s, 1000s, 800s, 800s. They keep going back and forth. And what they find is they can't make them slower no matter what they do. Yep. They cannot slow it down. It's racing. People are going to figure out a way to either, well, first cheat probably, right? And then B, if you're going to give us this limit, we're going to figure out a way to push that limit to the absolute uh, max. It's just the the nature of racing. Hey, I live in North Carolina. There are the NASCAR teams here. There are literally people where their job is to exploit the rule book, find the fine line between this rule where we can break the rule without getting caught. Like that's literally their job. That's racing. So I know it sounds easy to just like wave a magic wand and make some rule change that will instantly result in less injuries and better racing and all this. Hard to do, man. Yeah, no, I don't think it is. I don't think there's any way to do that. I think it's 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 definitely kind of the way that it's evolved, and it's just what it is now. And it's it's very unfortunate, but I think these guys know signing up, you know, when they're signing these contracts, that there's a good chance that practicing. I mean, anything anything can happen. Uh, like me, we're yep. just practicing to have another kid, and we have one. Oh, Jesus, like, what the hell? Right, yeah. and they're riding their dirt bike. You're riding whatever. I mean, that's all fun, right? Yeah, I was having a great time. Yeah. It was like three months later when she's like, hey, uh, so the pee test. I was like, oh, yes. I'm so excited. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Expensive practice session. Yay. Well, cool. Well, uh. Mr. Weege, if you will, I wanted to know if there had any any other, uh, I guess, thoughts on the brain, um, and if not, or if there are, you may ask them and go away. Um, what do you, What do you got? Anything? Well, I got it. Yeah, I do have a question for you. Uh oh. 
Uh, no, you're good. Beginning of the show, you mentioned how impossible it is to spell my last name. No doubt, I'm right there with you. I've had to correct people my entire life. Um, my wife, her maiden name was Nance. Her last name was Nance. N-A-N-C-E. Uh, very easy to say. If you saw it written, you would never mispronounce it. Easy to spell. And if I had taken that as my last name, <laughs> it would be Jason Nance. It would be it would the two words would even come together. It really would have probably helped my career to, to be in broadcasting and have a name that's easy to pronounce, spell, look up. Uh, but I don't know many dudes that take their wives' last name. So what do you think? Would that have been – if I had done that, if I had told you that I had a maiden name right now, if I had told you, yes, my name is Jason Nance today, but five years ago it was Wygant, would you have made fun of me? Uh, we probably would have had quite the discussion about it, yes. Okay, so I made the right decision, right? Sticking I, I with think, what I have. Yeah, because you got a really good nickname out of the deal, Weege. I think yeah, that's, I think that's a great nickname. Yeah, exclusively based on mispronunciation. So yeah. that's and what you, I get. And you know what your nickname would probably be if you had Nance. They'd just call you Nancy. Nice. So I did. I dodged a bullet. I think you came out on top I in more ways it. than one. Five years of marriage has got to be on top at least twice, right? Uh, I prefer it the other way around. hey oh, That's okay. Good man. Yeah. Good man. Well, dude, uh, I appreciate you being on the show. It's been a fantastic conversation. I like the fact that you're so easy to talk to and as well. You enjoy talking just like I do. So I can ask you a question and you're just like, bam, lots of words that make a lot of sense. And unfortunately, I'm lots of words that don't make any sense. So I appreciate you uh, helping me create such a fantastic episode. It is our last episode for 2013. We're going to be back in two weeks. Um, it's going to be fun. But, Mr. Weege, where can people find you? Uh, where are your columns and all that kinds of stuff if they were to find out more about you if for some reason they didn't already know who you were? Yeah, my main job really is the, the racerxonline.com website. Uh, I run that on the daily. I'm the editor of it. That's my main deal. That's every two hours i got to fill a freaking godforsaken deadline. Am I allowed to use those words? Um, yes. That's what I feel when I have to do it. Uh, yeah, that adds up to about... 28 stories a week we got to come up with which is not easy in the off season so if you want to see stuff that i've come up with um just literally to fill space that's a good place to do it and sometimes the stories are also actually informative and good too so that'll be your little challenge folks you go to the site read it all to try to figure out which ones are filler and which <laughs> ones are legit that'll build the traffic that's that's like a challenge man that's actually you yep. guys should that's a that's gotta be like a competition or something you guys Maybe we should do that i think you know the old motocross action magazine apparently one time in the old days like when photos in a magazine were slides that you had to like put into a machine to scan in. Somebody put one in backwards and the magazine came out and there was a backwards photo and they didn't want to admit that they made a mistake. So then they started doing it every month as like a trivia contest. Can you find the backwards photo? What a brilliant idea. Yeah, that's fun. I like it. Well, wouldn't you just realize that the name's written backwards? Or I mean, is it like that much more difficult to realize that a picture is backwards? Yeah, well, like the numbers would be backwards. But I think once they started doing it on purpose, they were picking photos like a guy, you know, like number one might be or number 11 or something like that. Some numbers are harder to tell. Or maybe they take sure. a photo where you couldn't really see the number clearly. They started getting creative finding the photo that would be hardest to figure out if it was backwards or not. Very cool. Well, that's fun. I'm going to have to go back and see if my dad's got any of those older magazines to try to find that kind of stuff. Yeah, ask him about backwards photo of the month. He'll probably know what I'm talking He's about. He's going to be like, the backwards lady of the month? I was like, Dad, wrong magazine. <laughs> wrong magazine whoa buddy whoa keep those in the closet you freak it's crazy well cool 
Well, as I close up shop and do all the house cleaning type stuff, I don't need to keep you on. But again, I really appreciate the time. It was fantastic getting to talk with you. And uh, I, now that we're friends on Skype, we may just call you in randomly. So be prepared. Yeah, you're the only friend on Skype I have. So That's make a- me feel good. Make me feel like I'm popular. Oh, I will. You're going to get right. all kinds of funness. I don't know. Maybe. Nice. <laughs> all right, dude. Well, you have fun tonight, and I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, Brian. Call me back, man, anytime. You know it. Thanks, dude. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. So episode 111 has been tons of fun. Um, lots and lots of information. I think I'm actually going to have to go back and listen to the whole episode again to make sure that I get all of Ouija's points across just to myself so I don't have to think as I try to talk back because I'm supposed to be running the show here at the same time. So, but what you have been watching is Seat Time, episode 111. I have to say a big thanks to all of our sponsors, um, Fly Racing. You can check them out at flyracing.com. Um, big thing is is it's winter time. Now in Texas, it's 70 degrees outside, so things are a little different than what we're used to. But I did notice that they do have their windproof jerseys out now. So you can go to uh, flyracing.com, moto, jerseys, and it's the first one that you come to on that page. Um, these are going to be the hot ticket for riding cold days. When that cold's back and when those guys are in stock, I'm buying one and I'm wearing it. I think it's going to make winter riding a lot more comfortable because you're not going to need a jacket on in those days where you're kind of like, ah, do I need a jacket on? Do I want a jacket? Am I going a sleeveless vest? What's the idea here? So go check that out. We definitely thank them for their support. They've been behind us for all three years. It's been fantastic. Hopefully for 2014 as well. I can't talk to it because nobody, nobody's, nobody's contracts have been signed, if you will. Um, of course, um, Powersport Graphics, so RidePG.com. Mr. Bolton, who loves to be in the chat room because he is good at what he does, and he gets in there and just creates the shenanigans for us. Uh, we do have a fantastic discount code with RidePG, um, Powersport Graphics. It is seat time, so that way you can just go in there and type seat time, a discount code, to give, save yourself some money. You can use that with any other discount that they have. So if they're running a Christmas promo off their website that you want to take advantage of, put the discount code in seat time on top of that. When you call them on the phone, tell them about your custom graphics that you're going to order. Make sure you give them the discount code seat time and how much you enjoy the show. And our third sponsor for this evening is Stillwell Performance. So you can find them at stillwellperformance.com. Those guys are fantastic at doing suspension work. A lot of people have been talking about the CS4 forks on uh, the KTMs and how they're so stiff and they're just so moto. Uh, These guys spend a lot of time figuring it out and making sure that they can uh, properly prep and redo your suspension for off-road. And you can tell by guys like Cody Webb, um, you know, Kyle Redman, Corey Grafunder, that they know what they're doing when it comes to off-road. So you can easily... Um, take advantage of that and check them out. So still with performance. We, of course, thank everybody for their support of Seat Time. Um, another reminder, we are still running free shipping all of this week. So you can go to seattime.bigcartel.com and you can get free shipping. You see that? That is a really shitty version uh, before it was finalized. But, hey, it happens. You know, it's whatever. Um, so you can check it out. We've obviously got our T-shirts. We've still got some of the Beer Olympics pint glasses um, and then some of the koozies. So we want to get rid of these Beer Olympic pint glasses so that we can order some more seat time ones. So if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm waiting on a seat time pint glass, buy one of these guys. It's free shipping right now. And then you can purchase one of the other ones once we get them back in. Um, I, somebody was asking me in the chat room, how is Alan doing? Um, I was talking with Brittany, um, his daughter, a little bit ago, and it sounds like he's doing awesome. Um, he's up, going on hikes in the morning, uh, obviously no riding or anything to that degree. But uh, already working the pain meds out of his system, which is fantastic news. So it sounds like Alan's doing really good for what could have been a very, very tragic situation. 
Um, and he sounds like he's rebounding quite well. So, man, they've been great supporters of Seat Time, and we really thank all those guys. So please go check out all of our sponsors, Fly Racing, Ride PG, Powersport Graphics, and then, of course, Stillwell Performance. All of them are awesome. Or I can just give you one. I'm not giving you anything, Bolton. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. So, there you go. Um, so, this is it. seat time. 2013 has been a fantastic year. Uh, we've grown a lot. We've learned about a lot about the show, how we want to run the show, and we've got a lot of stuff coming up for 2014. Um, we're going to have, I don't know, there might be a new look when you come back in two weeks um, for the studio. There might be some new equipment, which may not mean anything to you, but it's going to mean a shit ton of awesomeness to us. So, yeah. It may not be Ustream anymore. It may be YouTube. There's all kinds of fun stuff that we have in the works, um, and it's going to be a fun two weeks. That Mainly, we need this to test. We've got a lot, a lot of little things that we need to build and test. Um, so it's going to be, you know, an interesting holiday. Right now, when I get done, I just noticed the girls are here. We're going to go ahead and record our seat time holiday video. So please be on the lookout for that in the next couple days. Um, it's been a fantastic year. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Always enjoy a pint full of awesome... And yeah, we'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Peace.